0: Everybody, this is Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me for episode forty-seven of Radio Lux Lucid. The title of today's episode is "On the Constitution, Cadavers, and Catholics and United Methodists Together." Now, okay, that's kind of a weird combination of, of things. There, it doesn't really maybe sound like it's going to go together. But I I hope that as we go through this, that uh, that you see the the reason that I've I've put those all in the title. Uh, now, it, it does have one very obvious advantage that title <coughs> that title. <coughs> That title does, I mean, and and of course it's it's uh, an alliteration. You know, it's where you use the same letter for uh, for uh, for words uh, close together. And I've always I have to admit I've always been kind of a sucker for for alliteration. I you know, like Constitution Cadavers and Catholics and United Methodists together. That I, I don't know. I think that's kind of a kind of a nice uh, alliteration. They're using the the letter C. Words beginning with the letter C. Well. You know, today it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, last week I mentioned that I was getting started on doing my live stream at about uh, I don't know, was it twelve thirty or so on uh, on a Sunday morning, and I swore I promised I'm going to come back and I'm going to do a little bit better job of of starting at a little bit better time and. I actually was able to accomplish it this week. I'm a little bit shocked. Um, it's not super early. It's Right now, it's about 10.30 p.m. Eastern time. So I, I beat my my record last week uh, by uh, by a couple hours. And that's pretty good. I think that's a, that's a respectable show. I I like to do it earlier in the day, but uh, I didn't quite get around to it. One of the reasons was because I was actually pretty lazy, and I did something I don't do all that often today, and that is I, I actually took an afternoon nap. Which was pretty awesome. Uh, I have to admit, I, I truly did uh, did enjoy that uh, that experience. Kind of kind of put uh, put a uh, a YouTube video on. I just kind of closed my eyes and uh, kind of semi slept and semi listened to the uh, the video and some things like that. It was great. You know, it, it's funny. I remember when I was a kid, um, you know, and my mom would make me take an afternoon nap. I just hated it. I mean, it was like the worst thing. I, I just hated Why do I have to take this stupid nap? Blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, now, of course, as an adult, I, I think that I would give uh, all of my possessions sometimes. I think I'd give all of my possessions uh, just to have a, uh, an hour's nap uh, sometime in the afternoon, and, and I can't have one. Uh, isn't it? It's kind of funny how that works, isn't it? I mean, the, the things we have we don't want, and the things we we can't have, uh, we, we earnestly desire. And uh I don't know, I, I think there's probably a, a lesson in there in, in Christian contentment somewhere. But uh I'll I'll leave that for another time. But uh anyway, so uh I, I did uh I did at least get started a, a couple hours earlier this week than I did last week. And on top of that, I have a cup here full of uh it's actually this uh this hot apple cider that you can brew in a in a carrig. And I have to admit that stuff is uh it's almost sinfully good. You know, I mean, it's really good. I I I love this stuff and uh, it's always a real treat uh, to uh, to get a cup of that uh, uh hot apple cider on a on a cold winter day. So that uh I guess you call that comfort food, something like that. Anyway, um it's good and it's uh, it's nice to have a, a mug full of that right now to uh, to start doing a live stream. So uh anyway, what uh, what are we going to talk about here today? Well, I'm going to talk about something that I promised myself that I, I wasn't going to talk about, and and that is I'm going to talk about the impeachment of Donald Trump, and and I <laughs> I, I really 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 did not want to talk about this, but it, it's been the biggest story this past week, and this being Saturday, um, February the thirteenth. the news just broke. I don't know. It's been within the last couple hours or so that they they acquitted uh, Donald Trump uh, at his uh, his second impeachment trial. And I'm going to try something here. Um, I can do a, a screen share here on this restream. And let's see. Let's see how well this works here. I don't know. Hopefully you can can see that here. I'm going to try to maximize this. Okay, here's an article, and this is from the AP. Trump acquitted, denounced an historic impeachment trial, and you, you kind of scroll through here, and it says Donald Trump was acquitted Saturday of inciting the horrific attack on the U.S. Capitol, including a historic impeachment trial that spared him the first ever conviction of a current or former U.S. president, but exposed the fragility of America's democratic traditions, and left a divided nation to come to terms with a violent spark by his defeated presidency. And and I'm not going to read through all of this. I'll I'll put the uh the link in the show notes here. Um but uh Oh, the some of the language you see here in the AP is kind of interesting. So I'm going to read this one paragraph here. It says, The quick tri- trial, the nation's first of a former president, showed in raw and emotional detail how perilously close the invaders had come to destroy the nation's deep tradition of a peaceful transfer of presidential power after Trump had refused to concede the election. Rallying outside the White House, he unleashed a mob of supporters to fight like hell for him at the Capitol, just as Congress was certifying Democrat Joe Biden's victory. As hundreds stormed the building, some in tactical gear engaging in bloody combat with police, lawmakers fled for their lives. Five people died. Okay, so that's the AP. So, you know, I, I like how they 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 portray this. I mean, essentially, they say that, you know, you, you kind of get the sense that the, the writers of the AP really, really think that, that Donald Trump was actually guilty. Of uh, of uh, inciting insurrection because I mean the way they they describe it here listen to the, the language I'm just gonna gonna read that again it uh, it says here rallying outside the White House he referring to Donald Trump unleashed a mob of supporters to fight like hell for him at the Capitol well that's that that is th- this is really fundamentally dishonest journalism Donald Trump did not refuse uh, did not uh, unleash a mob of supporters to fight like hell for him at the Capitol. What he told people to do was to go peacefully and patriotically protest. That's not unleashing a mob of people to go fight like hell in, in, in some literal sense of the word. Uh, and the interesting thing was, of course, is that the, the actual violence that took place started during his speech. So, I mean, the people that were there that were apparently doing the initial, um, you know, the initial violence there at the Capitol building weren't even there listening to Trump's speech. They were there, you know, they, they were there, they were already there at the Capitol. Now, of course, it's one thing to say that that Trump did not incite resurrection or <laughs> incite insurrection. Uh, that Trump did not incite insurrection, uh, which I don't believe that he did. It's another thing, you know, somebody could come back and argue, well, what Trump did was unwise. Now I, I think you could make that argument to say maybe his his rally on that day maybe it was unwise, uh, especially in light of uh, of the events that took place. I think the events that took place did substantial damage to uh, not just a kind of gave his presidency a black eye, rightly or wrongly, but also I, I think it, it definitely hurt uh, tr- you know Trump supporters you know it's given the democrats a uh, a real opportunity to uh to strike out at at the the people that they see as their political enemies and you know and bl- brand them domestic terrorists and all sorts of other other terrible things they're using this as an excuse to to expand state power i mean they still have troops stationed in washington dc they still have as far as i'm aware all the barbed wire fencing and all that stuff up and you really seriously wonder if that's ever going to go away or at least go away anytime soon. It's very troubling what they've done. Yeah, I mean, in a in a sane country, in a law abiding country, what would happen is that those people who broke the law at the capital would receive you know whatever punishment is due to them, and we go on. But that's not what's happening here. And, and what they're what they're using this for, what the establishment seems to be using this for is uh, as a means to crack down on the liberties of the American people. And I think that that's uh, very dangerous. And uh, th- this is something that, that we as Christians need to be very, be very much concerned about because some of the language, and I talked a little bit about this last week, about the domestic uh, the war on domestic terror, and, and some of the language that's coming out of, of people such as, as John Brennan or the, uh, the, the bill that's there before Congress, what is it called, the, uh, um, the, uh, prevention, the Domestic Terrorism uh, Prevention Act, I think is, is the title of it. And, and it contains some very incendiary language and some very concerning language that could, if this is put into effect, if that bill ever does become law, do serious damage to the civil liberties of the American people. And this is not just people who are, say, conservatives or Republicans or Trump supporters, but all Americans. And all Americans should be very much concerned about the way that that event on January the 6th is being used. It's it's deeply concerning. And you don't have to be a Trump supporter uh, to, to be concerned about it. Um But anyway, you know, I I promised myself that I wasn't going to talk about impeachment. Because I I really, I I don't think that the, uh, it's not a a topic that I I find, I I don't want to lend it any legitimacy. But again, it's kind of difficult when when this is the biggest story in the week to to not talk about it at all. So I, I did want to at least touch base on a few things and maybe bring to light a couple items maybe that uh, that haven't necessarily been talked about in the mainstream press. Yeah, you know, that, that's one of the things when I I do some of these uh, when I do the you know, write a blog piece, or if I, I do a podcast, I try to bring a little bit different angle um, to to the story, maybe than what other people have have covered. So that was the the basic outline there from uh, from the AP, but um, you know one of the things I've I've thought to myself about this whole impeachment trial is is that it's just just simply stupid, and, and I know maybe that sounds like a harsh uh, harsh word to use, but I don't know what else to say about it. Um, that simply that it's it's stupid, and and the reason why I say it's stupid is well, just read the Constitution, uh, Article Two, Section Four of the United States Constitution reads quote. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So, you know, again, get the language shall be removed from office. Now, Donald Trump is not in office, therefore, he cannot be removed from office. And the idea of having an impeachment trial for someone who's not even a president any longer is ridiculous. I mean, and this just goes to show, I, I think it goes to, to show a number of things. I mean, I, th- I think on one hand, it just shows the complete disrespect that we have in, uh, in the year 2021 for logic. Yeah. I, I think back on the, uh, there was that essay that, that John Robbins wrote, and this goes back. It's, uh, it's called "What the uh, the Crisis of Our Time," and and in uh, in, in that that article in that that uh, Trinity Review, and it's also something that has been republished in a lot of uh, in uh, subsequent uh, books and things that have been issued by the Trinity Foundation. John Robbins talked about the uh, the rejection of logic in you know, modern, in the modern day West. Now, of course, we go back to the Constitution. It was written in in the 1780s, and it was written at a time when there was still respect for logic. And so when the writers of the Constitution talk about removing a president from office and they put in the the, you know, the, the impeachment provision, I, they probably never dreamed that it would be used to try to impeach, quote, someone who had never been, who who currently wasn't even in office any longer. I mean, that just the on the surface, the logic is ridiculous. And, and that's one of the reasons why I haven't wanted to talk about it, to discuss it, to write about it, because the, the whole thing just strikes me as just, it's logically absurd. And I don't really like talking a lot about logical absurdities, but I suppose in this case, maybe I'll, I'll at least have to just to point out the degree of the absurdity. Um, You know, and, and that's really the the thing in, in the first place. And, and of course, I, I think secondly, you know, it's, I mean, it seems to me that it's really been used by Donald Trump's political enemies to excoriate both him as well as his supporters. And, and I think unfairly. I mean, when you, th- you think about it, I mean, they're trying to charge Donald Trump with insurrection. He told people to go peacefully and patriotically protest. That's not insurrection. That's not inciting to insurrection. As I mentioned earlier, I think someone could come back and say, well, it wasn't a wise thing for him to hold that rally. And I think you can make that argument. But saying that something is unwise is not the same thing as saying that Donald Trump incited insurrection. I do not believe that he did. And those people who went overboard on January the 6th, you know, those, you know, somebody, you know, they broke the law. I mean, it was, there's, uh, uh some, uh, some video out there of, uh, of some, some violence, uh, that took place, but you know, those are, you know, those people, you know, they, they should be punished in some respect or another. Um, you know, some of them maybe did some things uh, more than others did. Probably. I, I think there are probably people who are, are guilty of breaking some law and those people ought to receive their just punishment. And that's the end of it. But, of course, they don't want to let things ever, you know, they, they don't ever want want to let things just drop. You know, they, they want to keep pushing it and use this, you know, as I had also mentioned earlier, to uh, to undermine the civil rights of the American people. And that's a very dangerous thing, and that's a very concerning thing. Now, you know, it's interesting, one critic in in kind of talking about the whole uh Oh, the, uh, the this uh, kind of impeachment farce, which I, I think is really probably the best term to use. Just call it a farce. Um, he likened it to something called, uh, it was interesting, he called it the Cadaver Synod. And I remember reading about that years ago, and and when he was talking about the Cadaver Synod, I had to look this up a little bit. And and the Cadaver Synod is is something that took place uh, in Rome in in 1897, and what it was is that it was was one pope, it was Pope Stephen VI, who decided to put on trial the dead body of his predecessor, uh, the predecessor pope, uh, who uh, went by the name of Formosus. And they, uh, Formosus had been dead for, I think, about seven months at that point, but they dug the man's, I, I guess they, 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 uh, they got his corpse out of, out of the tomb and they propped it up in a chair and he, they, they charged him, uh, Formosus that is, they charged his corpse at any rate with, um, transmigrating seas in violation of canon law, of perjury, and of serving as a bishop while actually a layman. Uh, th- those those were the charges uh, and oddly enough he was was uh, found guilty he was convicted of these uh, uh, probably on all counts I, I don't know for sure but but probably on all counts uh, he didn't really have uh, the ability to uh, to speak for himself or to face his accusers um, and uh, this is kind of a bizarre thing um, and and of course that's not the first time that, that you see that sort of thing taking place in the Roman Catholic Church there was a uh, probably uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a number of people who had something similar done to them, but I, I know of one, uh, there was one other person, uh, one well-known person who was convicted uh, post-mortem, and of course that was uh, John uh, Wycliffe. Uh, he received similar treatment. Of course, uh, John Wycliffe is, you know, sometimes as, as Protestants, we would call him the morning star of the Reformation because he uh, taught very vigorously against a lot of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, one of his great achievements, too, was translating the Bible in into English. Um, and his followers, the people that propagated the, uh, the the English translation that he made, they were called the Lollards. And this was all in the in the 14th century. I mean, it was some, uh, you know, it was over, uh, it was well over a hundred years before Martin Luther was even born that this was taking place. So you see, this this there was this great movement of uh, uh, of, of God of the Spirit taking place in in England in in the 1400s. And it's, uh, but uh, of course, Rome didn't uh, didn't much like uh, John Wycliffe, and uh, Wycliffe died in in 1384. Now, some years later, and this is in 1415, so this is, what, 31 years later, uh, Wycliffe was declared a heretic uh, by the uh, Council of Constance, and uh, the Council of Constance declared that uh, Wycliffe's writings should be burned— and they also declared that his body ought to be removed from from consecrated ground, and so they they dug him up. You know, thirty some years after he had had died, they they exhumed his body, they burned his body, and then they cast his ashes into the river Swift. So, uh, so John Wycliffe received uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, the the indignity of having that done to him uh, after after he had died. And of course, you know, John Wycliffe is uh, is a great hero. Uh, of of the Christian faith, and and we remember him, but this was uh, certainly a great injustice that was done to him uh, after uh, after his death, um, again by by the Roman Catholic Church. So there's a, another example of of Rome doing that sort of thing. Now that leads me a bit into uh, to another topic that uh, that I did want to discuss. And in this case, this is, uh, I was talking about, uh, this is the third C. We talked about the, the Constitution and how the Constitution applies to impeachment. We talked about the cadavers, uh, or a cadaver, especially in, uh, in the issue with, uh, with Pope Formosus. Uh, and, uh, then also there's the matter of Catholics and Methodists together. So this is, uh, this is our third C here. And there was a, uh, an article that I read. This, uh, I think came out, uh, I guess what, this is the 13th. So yeah, this came out three days ago. It's dated, it's a press release from the United Conference of Catholic Bishops. It's dated February the 10th, 2021. And the title is that Catholics, uh, and United Methodists Together is a collaborative publication resulting from decades of dialogue. And, and you can read through some of this here and it's, uh, um, it's, it uh, reads this, "...Representatives of the United Methodist Church in the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, USCCB, announced the release of the results of its latest round of dialogue in the form of a two-part publication." This eighth round of dialogue was co-chaired by Bishop David P. Talley of the Catholic Diocese of Memphis and Bishop Peggy Johnson, resident bishop of the Philadelphia Episcopal Area of the United Methodist Church. Now, of course, you know, one of the things, uh, there's a few things that that we can talk about here in this, uh, just in this paragraph. Um, I, I guess in, in, uh, one of the, the obvious things here is that the, the Roman Catholic Church has uh, scored another ecumenical victory. And, you know, this time they've, uh, they've managed to, uh, to pull the, the United Methodist Church in, into its, its orbit. Now, you know, of course, you know, Methodism, you know, the, the, the doctrine of John Wesley, Wesleyanism or Wesleyanism, I guess, Wesleyism, Wesleyanism, I guess is this the correct word. Um, yeah, you know, as a Calvinist, you know, as, as a Presbyterian, you know, I, I don't have a, a very high view of of Methodist doctrine, and I apologize if there's any. Well, uh, I was going to say, you know, I, I hope I don't uh, overly offend any uh, Methodist if you happen to be listening. But but as a Calvinist, I I have substantial uh, disagreements with uh, with John Wesley and and with Methodism. Um, you know, even in its most uh, biblical or conservative form, I, I think it's a seriously flawed theology. And, and, and I, I, can't, I can't say otherwise. I mean, the logic compels me to say, you know, I disagree with, uh, with Wesleyan doctrine. Nevertheless, I mean, it was a church that at least historically was not uh, at least formally connected uh, with Rome. And, and now at least one substantial branch of the Methodist Church is, is connected with Rome, the, uh, uh, the United Methodist Church um uh, they've signed this accord or this agreement uh with uh with the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and they they go on here and this is the the press release uh goes on it talks about uh oh let's see here um There's two books. The first book is subtitled We Believe, We Pray, We Act, emphasizing the importance of our shared recognition of one another's baptisms and pastoral commentaries on the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the commandment to love God and neighbor. The second book, subtitled Shared Prayers and Resources, offers a practical guide for Methodists and Catholics to learn, pray, and worship together. Well, here's here's the problem. Of course, this is the case anytime you have Roman Catholic... um, ecumenical activities with, uh, with Protestants, evangelicals, uh, what have you, um, the, the Roman Catholics always win and the Protestants always lose, you know, and, you know, and, and here they're talking about, uh, you know, shared prayers, recognition of one another's baptism, etc. Well, well, Roman Catholic baptism is, is not legitimate Christian baptism. And there was, uh, in fact, there's a book published by the Trinity Foundation. I think it was a James Henry Thornwell. I think I'm, I I, uh, I I hope I'm not, not messing that name up, but there's a book that's put out called Sacramental Sorcery. And, and Thornwell goes on. He was a Southern Presbyterian, Thornwell was. And, and he, he explains in that book, you know, that, that Roman Catholic baptism is not Christian baptism. And, and it's, you know, so I mean, there's a very serious problem right there. And in, in as far as praying together, again, you know, Roman Catholics are not Christians, and the Roman Catholic Church is not a Christian church. Now, I realize that that is a... Uh, a pretty radical statement. That's probably a pretty offensive statement to a lot of people. And there's certainly a lot of pushback that you're going to find, not just from Roman Catholics. In fact, you might even find more pushback from, from, uh, from Protestants, if you were to say that, than, than, if, than from Roman Catholics. I remember a number of years ago, I was at a Bible study, and we were discussing some things. Somehow the topic of Rome came up, and, and I made the point that the Roman Catholic Church believed in the real presence of Christ in the Mass. And there were people there who should have known better. I mean, these were people who were, you know, these are people who, theologically speaking, knew quite a bit. Um, There was, in fact, someone who uh, even had been a minister at the time. and. I got a lot of pushback for that statement. And, and there were a lot of people that were oh, denying, oh, no, 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 Rome doesn't teach that. Well, of course Rome teaches that. That is absolutely central. It, that's not just a, a fringe doctrine. That is a central doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. They believe in the real presence of Christ in the Mass. Now, nowhere is this taught in Scripture. That is a novel doctrine. And you know as Christians, it, we have to condemn that from the Scriptures. And, and so there's, there's really no way that we can, can recognize one another's baptism or pray together or say, okay, you know, we're, we're fellow believers because, because we are not. I mean, Rome explicitly rejects the gospel of justification by belief alone. They condemn people. The Council of Trent condemned anyone who believes in, in the idea in, in, in justification by belief or faith alone. They condemned them. You know, and if, if you are a, a biblical Protestant, if you believe the doctrines of grace, you and I, you know, all of us together, we stand under dozens and dozens and dozens of condemnations of anathemas from the Roman Catholic Church, and they have never removed those. And you know, it used to be Rome was a little bit more honest than what they are now, and they would talk about Protestants, when they would discuss Protestants, they would call them heretics. And if if you believe Roman Catholic doctrine, then yes, it it logically must follow that Protestants are heretics. But of course, that was back in the day when there was at least a little bit more respect for logic. Now, I'm not saying that Protestants are heretics. They're not. Protestants are Christians. At least ones who actually believe Protestant doctrine. You know, if you believe the doctrines that are outlined, say, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, if you believe those, what the, what the confession teaches about the scriptures, what the confession teaches about uh, how we are, are saved, how we're justified uh, through faith in Christ alone. If you believe those things, you're a Christian. You can't not be a Christian and believe those things. But uh, you can understand them uh, and and not believe them, but if you both understand them and you accept those concepts, justification by faith alone, if you understand that and you accept it as true, you are a Christian. And, you know, you you are not... um, you know, you're not a you're not a heretic. You are a Christian. And if you are a Christian, you can't accept what the the Roman Catholic Church teaches. You know, we talked about earlier in the in the first topic we talked about, we talked about the constitution and what it says about impeachment. You know, impeachment is the removal of a president, a vice president or I think what was the word, some other uh, public official. Um, uh let's see the president, vice president, and all civil, all o- civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment, foreign conviction of treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So there's, there's three classes of persons as presidents, vice presidents, and, and all civil officers of the United States. They're removed, um, by impeachment, you know, logic, uh, good sound logic requires us, requires us to say that the, uh, uh, that, that somebody has to be in office in order to be removed from that office. You know, again, you know, but there's not a lot of respect for logic here in the uh, in the 21st century, and it's been that way for a long time. You know, this, isn't, this isn't something that just started here in the 21st century. This has been going on for a very long time, probably at least the last 200 years. If you look at at the history of, uh, of philosophy and theology, uh, how irrationalism has has really come to dominate the way we think or, or maybe don't think, um, in, uh, in in the, uh, in the 21st century. So you can see it on the impeachment side of things and you can see it here with, um, with these, these ecumenical dialogues, you know, Rome and, and, uh, in these, some of these, these liberal Protestants, um, they, they, they want to put logic aside. They want to try to square a circle. They want to try to find unity in things where there really isn't any unity. um, and uh you know and again you can come back and you can criticize methodist doctrine but the the point simply being is that this is just another notch in rome's belt they're not this isn't the first church that they've struck an accord like this with uh, before I, I know that they have had some accords with uh, with lutheran churches and uh, i believe various re- or i don't know if we, maybe accords not the right word but certainly agreements or, or understandings or um documents of various sorts that have been signed by people um from both the Catholics and lutheran side of things and i think there are some reformed churches in europe where those uh, those agreements have been made and they're not going to stop you know, Rome is not going to stop. I mean, the whole idea is to pull all of the uh, the Protestant churches into the orbit of Rome. That's what they want to do. And it was interesting. I was reading a uh, a piece going back and rereading a, a Trinity Review from uh, from a couple years ago called "If You Can't Beat Them, Join Them." uh, by, uh, by a gentleman named Marco, uh, real. I, I don't know. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. It's R E A L E. I don't know if it's real or Rialli. Um, he's, uh, he's actually, uh, is, is Italian, but, uh, but he was born, uh, he was born in Italy, uh, but he lives in, uh, in Great Britain now. And, uh, and he's a, uh, He's a uh, is a Protestant and he's a believer. He's a brother in Christ and, and he's someone that uh, he wrote a very interesting piece. Um, and uh, it's actually something I, I hope to be able to uh, to interview him uh, sometime in a not too distant future uh, for, uh, for Trinity Foundation Radio. So uh, Lord willing, that uh, that'll be an interview that'll happen uh, happen fairly soon. But when I was reading his piece, he uh, he was talking about a. Uh, Vatican II and, and how Vatican II really represented a, a big change in strategy for Rome. You know, previous to Vatican II, when, when the, uh, the Roman Catholics, uh, you know, the, uh, the magisterium, you know, the Catholics or the, uh, the popes and the cardinals and the bishops, what have you, when they would talk about Protestants, they would refer to them as heretics, which, again, if you believe Roman Catholic doctrine to be true, that's logically what you would have to call. Protestants. Again, not that Protestants are heretics, they are Christians. If they believe biblical doctrine, if they believe the doctrines of the Reformation, the doctrines of grace, the the souls of the Reformation, they're not heretics. But... If you believe Catholic doctrine, you must say that that, that uh, Protestants are heretics. But um during the nineteen the sixties, during the, the Vatican the Second Vatican Council or Vatican II when that took place in the sixties, you know, Rome tried to kind of change its tone. They kind of wanted to kind of soften the edges, I think. You know, and maybe uh maybe somebody in Rome uh started to uh to think maybe that they could you know, as the saying goes, that uh, they could catch more more flies with uh, with honey than with vinegar. And so instead of going and, and, and using the language of, of, of heretics to talk about Protestants, to talk about Bible-believing Christians, they started calling them separated brethren. Now, the term separated brethren I don't think originated with Vatican II, but it became much more prominent um, uh, during Vatican II and, and of course, in, in the years subsequent to that. And what's interesting is the, the document in Vatican II where this was really discussed it was a document from nineteen sixty-eight. It's called Unitatis uh Red Integratio, which is Latin and it simply just means restoring unity. So they have this doctrine called restoring unity, and then they they talk about Protestants as as separated brethren. And so the the whole theme of this this uh this uh well, I guess it was an encyclical. Um, I, I think I'm using the correct term for that. the The whole uh, purpose behind this document is to say, oh, you know, so so we've got these separated brethren over here, and 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 uh, in the in the interest of restoring unity, we're we're going to not call them heretics. We're going to call them separated brethren, and and hopefully try to to bring them back into the, the orbit of of Holy Mother Church. Uh, that seems to be the thought here. Uh, behind behind Roman Catholicism, well again, you know logically there there really cannot be any unity i mean there's a reason why there was a Protestant Reformation you know Martin Luther when when he nailed his 95 theses to the door at, uh, at Wittenberg church he didn't do that with the thought of starting and, you know, he didn't say oh, i'm going to start the protestant reformation on october 31st 1517 you know that wasn't how it was i mean martin luther had some complaints against the teachings of rome and he wanted to have a debate he wanted to have a scholarly debate he wanted to to fix the problems with rome you know, he saw rome as, as 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 a legitimate church that that needed some fixing it needed to to, to be uh, to be reformed. Well, what he found out is Rome wasn't going to be reformed. There's no interest in the part of uh, of the popes or the the bishops or the cardinals or the priests or the you know the, the people who ran the Roman Catholic Church there was no interest in in changing their doctrine. They were quite happy with things the way they were. And of course, you know, they declared Luther a heretic and they they excommunicated him and and thus really, you know, the the reformation began in earnest. Um, you know, it, at least, you know, for all of the problems that the Roman Catholic Church had, at least they were willing to recognize the fact that what Luther was teaching didn't square with what they were teaching and that they couldn't, you know, there, there was no, no middle ground there. You know, that either they were going to have to repent and, and come over to Luther's side, or Luther was going to have to come over to their side, or barring that neither side was willing to move, that, that they were going to have to go their separate ways, or they were going to have to, from their standpoint, they wanted to, to boot Martin Luther out, which they did. Uh, which, which they did. You know, and and that's, uh, that's the split that, that exists. And, and the issues that divided Rome from uh, biblical Christianity have not gone away. They haven't gone away at all. Um, justification by faith alone—that you know, was the hinge on which uh, uh, which the, uh, the the church turned. Or I think the uh, had had Martin Luther put. He said that was the doctrine of the the standing or falling church. You know, that was the central issue at the time of the Reformation, and it's the central issue in the year twenty twenty one. That hasn't changed. You know, some five hundred and what five hundred and four years later. Yeah. 504 years later now, uh, we're going on 504 years, I guess this fall it'll be, be 504 years at, uh, on October 31st, 2021. But that, that, that doctrine of, of justification by faith, learning, how is a, a sinner declared righteous before uh, an all-holy God? That is the central issue. And if you can't agree on that, there's no basis for unity. And of course, there isn't any. I mean, there's there's no basis for Roman Catholics and Christians to get together and pray together and recognize one another's baptism, because we don't even agree on how sinful men can can be saved. You know, how sinners can approach an all holy God, um, and, and 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 live to tell about it. We can't we can't agree on that. I mean, as and, and again, you know, this is an issue that hasn't gone away. Even though the Roman Catholic Church, and in response to, in in, in response, at least partially in response to that, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, I think at at the very best, I think that you could say a lot of very confused evangelicals have tried to soften the edges and tried to find some some common ground. There isn't any common ground. There's none to be found. Well, anyway. Um, one of the things about this, one of the reasons I wanted to, to talk about this, is because, in some respects, reading this whole thing about the the uh, the documents and the, the collaboration between Rome and the United Methodists, it's just another example of some some of the, at least from my perspective, very thoroughly depressing uh, news that is is out there. Um, <laughs> Every day. I mean, there's just not a whole lot of good news. In fact, I, I think there's, I said it last week. It seems like there isn't any good news at all. Uh, a lot of times. And you see stuff like this and it's just, well, yeah, I mean, okay. There goes another, another, uh, church organization getting sucked into the, uh, the orbit of Rome. And of course you can tell the United Methodist uh Church is is already substantially in, in, in very, very bad shape because they, they talk here. They they talk one of the participants from the uh, uh from the uh United Methodist side is somebody by the name of Bishop Peggy Johnson. She's resident bishop of the Philadelphia Episcopal Area of the United Methodist Church. Well, um now we don't agree as a Presbyterian. I certainly don't agree with uh, the uh, uh, the Episcopal form of church government. Um, I'm a Presbyterian, so I agree with with Presbyterian church government. And. So, I mean, that, that's one problem, but, but another problem here, of course, is they have a woman in that position. And I know that this is very controversial in a lot of places, but, you know, the apostle Paul did say, I do not suffer a woman to teach or have exercise authority over a man. Women should not be in positions of, uh, of deacons or of elders or of, of preachers, ministers. Um, there's, there's no, uh, there's no biblical basis for doing that. What that is, is is that is a result of feminism that has, you know, oh. and, you know of course, feminism is something that's been, been very prominent over the last 200 years. It's gone through various waves and um, it has done enormous damage to, to churches and it's done enormous damage to society at large. And uh, I don't want to go down that, that route too much right now, but I hope to be able to talk about that some in, in more detail at some time. But, I mean, you see this uh, very commonly. And in, in, in the fact that that you have the United Methodists, that they have a, a female bishop representing them at these talks with Rome, I mean, it's just indicative of how badly fallen that church is because it's, it's not difficult to understand that a woman should not be in a position like that. And again, you know that that that's a uh, by a lot of people that would be considered a radical thought. Um, that just again goes to show you how little respect we have for theology and just how badly decomposed the the Protestant Reformation has become in our day. But uh, more commentary on that, I'm just I, I I'll leave that for another time. But one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up is because again, you know, you you look at uh, what's going on here. Between Rome and, and the Methodist, and, and frankly, it's it's discouraging um, to me. I, I I look at that and, and I get frustrated. I, I get, you know, it's like, oh, here, you know, the the bad guys win another one. But I, I wanted to to give you a little different take on that because one of the things you know, as Christians, as Reformed believers, is you know, we believe in in the decrees of God. We believe that God is sovereign and that that He He works all things according to His will. And for his own glory, and also for the good of his own people. Okay, you know that that's kind of a very brief summary of the whole idea of of, uh, of the decrees of God. You know, God is not passive in history; um, He brings these things about. He doesn't just allow things to happen, but He actually brings them about. And God, in His His uh, infinite his, his His wisdom, in His His power, uh, has brought it about that the United Methodists and the Roman Catholics would get together and and uh, sign these these documents and he does that for his own glory again and also not just his own glory but also for the good of his people and i wanted to give you an example uh, just maybe a little personal testimony here of what this means and so you know when you see stuff like this you know that that you that you don't get totally discouraged i mean it's frustrating to watch this type of thing but you know as christians we know that ultimately we 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 know ultimately that 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 the good guys win even though there seems to be so much evil going on and there seems to be nothing to stop it. Uh, And I want to talk a little bit about this, something from my own experience and, and how I, how I came to Christ, how I came to a, you know, faith and in a reformed understanding of, uh, of Christianity. And, you know, this goes back into the the 1990s and I was in my late twenties or so. And, um, I was doing a lot of reading in theology. You know, I, I had kind of grown up in church, but I had, had gotten away from it. Um, And I was doing a, a lot of reading in theology. And I was also very interested in politics. I still am interested in politics. I think I've maybe mentioned this before. I've always been interested in politics. Um, I, I don't remember a time when I wasn't. But... I was reading, uh, it was actually the National Review. I had a subscription to the National Review. And, and in the National Review, they always had, uh, typically had a, a book review section. And I remember reading in the National Review, um, that there was this new book out. It was called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And it was, you know, Chuck Colson or Charles Colson was the, uh, was uh, sort of the lead, the one that was given the most credit for, for writing this. I guess you call him the lead author of it. And, and the, the review in in uh, in the National Review was very positive. They thought this was a great book. And that didn't surprise – I guess it's not surprising because, of course, the, the National Review was founded by William Buckley. And if you – he's deceased now, but if you, if you remember William Buckley, he was a very prominent conservative for a number of decades from the 50s, I'd say, well up through uh, the end of the century, really. I, I can't remember when he – when he, uh, he died, but, but he lived, I, I think, at least in the 90s and maybe even after that. But he was a very prominent figure in, in American conservatism, and he was a Roman Catholic. And the, the editorial stance of the National Review was, unsurprisingly, very pro-Roman Catholic. And so these, this Catholic conservative magazine came out and it was talking about how great this, this new book was called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And in looking at that, I, I, I was, honestly, I was a bit, um, I was concerned. You know, when I first saw that title, I thought, you know, I, I don't like the sound of that. And so I wanted to ch- check it out for myself. So I actually went out and I got a copy. Now, this was actually uh, mm. back in the days before Amazon, if you can remember that. This is the mid-90s uh, when the whole uh, Internet thing was just getting going. I actually had to go out and buy a copy of it uh, at a bookstore. And there used to be these weird things that were called bookstores. I know that that may be, be hard for some people to understand if, you, if you're younger, but they actually did exist. There were physical bookstores you could walk in and actually touch books and pull them off the shelves and, and this sort of thing. And so I went and, and I bought this book, uh, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and read it. And, and I was appalled by it. Now, you have to understand, I, I don't know. I, I You know, I, I, I may have been saved. I, I don't know for sure. Um, I do know that I, I, I didn't know very much theology, but I was doing a lot of reading in scripture. I know I can say this much at the very least. Um, I know that, that God was calling me. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a thing where where Steve Matthews was was uh, was seeking God on his own. I mean, God God was calling me, and and he was he was causing me to be interested in the Scriptures. He was causing me to do a lot of reading. I was reading the Bible, I was reading other books, and and when I read this Evangelicals and Catholics together, I was appalled by it because it was pretty evident to me, even though I didn't know very much, it was evident to me that the the, the Protestant side is represented by Chuck Colson and some others. They were giving away the store and the Roman Catholics weren't giving up anything. You know, it was, it was a one way street. I mean, the, the Roman Catholics were basically eating Colson and his buddy's lunch. But they didn't seem to, to understand that for whatever reason. And uh, I went out and I actually got my the, the copy of that I was looking at it earlier before I did the, the podcast. And they have all these kind of very skeptical and sometimes angry notes in the margin, you know, criticizing uh, a lot of the statements that were in this book. And I remember when I got done with it, I was very bothered by it. I was very upset by it because I was... I, it, it seemed to me almost intuitively that there was something very wrong going on here. And... I had to stop and I had to ask myself this question, though. Why is this wrong? And I I started to realize to myself, I I couldn't answer that question. If somebody came up to me and said, Steve, I know you're opposed to this whole evangelicals and Catholics thing, but why is it wrong? And I would have said, well, it's just wrong. It it can't be right. This is just wrong. And, uh, well, I realized that's not really a very good answer, is it? say, well, this is just wrong. So I, I decided, I said, well, you know, I, I need to go, I, I need to learn. You know, I need to to figure out what's going on here, why I believe what I believe. And I, I did some searching around, and I eventually came across a book by, uh, by R.C. Sproul. And this book by R.C. Sproul, it came out shortly after Evangelicals and Catholics came out, and it was written specifically as a refutation of, evangelicals and Catholics together. So, I, well, okay, this is very helpful. This, you know, I, I had heard the name Arceus probably didn't know that much about him, but he, I, I knew he was a, he was a Protestant. He was a Presbyterian. And, and so I, I started reading through this book and um, I remember in, in the course of reading the book, you know, and he outlined there, there he, he provided some some I think some very good information that began helping me to understand things. And and one of the things that he taught in that book was the importance of the word alone. You know, when you would when you would read through evangelicals and Catholics together, you know, the evangelicals say, Yeah, you're saved by faith, and and, and the Romans would say, Yeah, we're saved by faith, and we all are saved by faith, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And you know, let's get together and have a big group hug and sing kumbaya or something. Well what what Sproul t- started talking about it or talked about it in this book was he said the the word alone is missing. He said in 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 Protestant doctrine, in biblical doctrine, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. And and when you would read through these these documents, um, when you read through the Evangelicals and Catholics together book, the word alone was missing. They would agree, okay, yeah, we're saved by by faith, by grace through faith because of Christ, but it wouldn't be alone. You know, because of course, if if you know the the Roman Catholics, if they're being honest, they can't really say you're saved by faith alone. You know, through by grace through faith you know, in, in Christ alone, they can't say that. Because they don't believe that, you know, they they believe in you know that, that Christ has to do His thing, and then you have to do your thing, and you've got to take your works, and and you got to mix your works with Christ's works, and maybe bring in some of the the uh, the, uh, the the merit of the saints and Mary, and you kind of mix them all together, and 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 that's what gets you into heaven. But but that's not; it's the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, ascribed, reckoned to us, and received by faith alone in Christ alone. That is how we are saved. That's how we're justified. It's how we're saved. You say justified, I mean, that's really kind of a shorthand for just saying you're saved. Because when you're justified, you are saved. If you're justified, you inevitably are saved. Um, It's uh, not like uh, what some... uh, some uh, very confused, uh, I think you might even say heretical teachers teach, um, that, that somehow you can be, be justified, but, but, but you're, you're not saved that those, those two things are, uh, must go together. Um, there's, there's no, no exception, um, to those, but again, I don't want that, to, that's a great topic, but I'm going to, going to put that aside for now. I'm not going to go down that, uh, that particular, uh, uh, trail at this time, although it's one that's very worth uh, very worth discussing. Um, where was I? Oh yeah, so so the the word alone was missing. So that was one big thing that I learned in in reading R.C. Sproul. There was something else though too that I got out of it that that just um you know it was one of those lights on moments, and maybe you've had that maybe when you were came to Christ or you know if you ever had this this experience where you you didn't understand something and all of a sudden boom it just became crystal clear to you well, I remember reading through this and and RC Sproul started talking about the Protestant doctrine of uh, the that regeneration precedes faith that first you're regenerated by by God through the through the Holy Spirit and and that regeneration is is what what prompts you to have faith in Christ? And I was just absolutely blown away. I was floored by this. And in fact, I don't think I've ever had anything hit me harder in all my life. Or you know, it was just like all of a sudden, you know, you're being in a dark room and boom, all these lights come on. And it, it was a, a really a, a, an amazing experience because I had grown up in in a church, and, and this is like this is true of most American churches, uh, certainly Armenian churches, they teach that faith precedes regeneration. In other words, you have to have faith in Christ, and then at some point you're regenerated. You know, you're you're saved. Well no, it's the other way around. It's it's the regeneration that takes place, and that's what causes you to believe. And that was really when the Bible as a whole started to make sense to me for the first time in my life. And I was 30 years old. I was absolutely just blown away by this. So this is something that I got um, from reading R.C. Sproul. Why was I reading R.C. Sproul? Because I had read Chuck Coulson, Chuck Colson's book, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, had been deeply concerned and bothered by it and, know that, and understood that I needed to, to know why it was a problem. So it's kind of interesting how God used this um, this really heretical movement—evangelicals and Catholics together—trying to bring together two sides th- th- where there's really no basis for an agreement. He used that book, um, to to help save me. You know, not—it wasn't just that book by itself, but he used that to really goad me into to doing some study, uh, and and in doing that study, he taught me the truth. Um, and, and that, that's kind of an amazing thing. So that's why I say when you see some of these, these evangelical type movements and, and you see, or or these, these ecumenical type movements and, and you see the, uh, and it's frustrating. It is. It's disheartening to watch some of this stuff, but we, we know that all things work together for good to those who, who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, you know, as, as the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8 and, and this is just an example of how God uses something that is in itself uh, sinful. I mean the, these bishops, these cardinals, uh, the popes and that that have have pushed for this kind of ecumenism ecumenism you know they mean it for evil. Uh, but God means that for the good of his people. he certainly meant that for for my good and, and that was uh, I think that was, uh, was an amazing thing. Um, and, and sometimes when I, I look back on it, and I think that's that's maybe kind of an odd way to. To, uh, to become a, a Calvinist uh, to be saved to become a Calvinist and in my case uh, eventually a Clark and maybe that's a, a little bit of an odd story but but that's how that's what God used to, to bring me to himself and uh, so anyway I wanted to to share that testimony with you well I think that's a probably a, a good time to, to wrap things up here for today so I just wanted to say to everybody uh, thanks for listening to those uh, watching a live stream thanks for joining me uh, for the program I I really do appreciate that and until next next time may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study god's word good night everybody